Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're just doing our best to keep things on track. Our guest is Tina Baker, whose debut novel, Call Me Mummy, was released to much acclaim back in the spring. I missed her back then, so I've got her on the show now to help celebrate the paperback release. Call Me Mummy is a story of stolen children, toxic media, mental illness and class warfare. Now that's a lot to fit into one book, but as you'll hear, I think Tina pulls it off with a plum and a strain of delightful black humour. Usually the book is the main event in these conversations. Let's face it, we all know what the deal is. I need guests, authors want to promote their stuff. But on this one, it's me who has to keep reminding Tina that she's got a book to sell. We go endlessly and wonderfully off track, but when Tina starts talking about her life, it's impossible not to follow her down whichever rabbit hole she leads. I don't normally do this, but let me read you the bio from the inside cover of Call Me Mummy. This one paragraph explains a lot, and it's a better bit of writing than some full novels I've read. This is me. You can hear me opening the novel. I have it in front of me. Authenticity. Okay. Tina Baker was brought up in a caravan after her mother, a fairground traveller, fell pregnant by a window cleaner. After leaving the bright lights of Colville, she came to London and worked as a journalist and broadcaster for 30 years. She's probably best known as a television critic for the BBC and GMTV and for winning Celebrity Fit Club. Call Me Mummy is Tina's first novel, partly inspired by her own unsuccessful attempts to have a child. Despite the grief and disappointments of that, she hasn't stolen one so far. So listeners from around the UK are now going, Oh, it's that woman from the telly. Yes, it is. And she's simply a very, very funny person. And she has to meet my dog, Ted, via Zoom. So she gets special brainy points for that as well. But to be serious for a moment, as that bio explains, this novel and this conversation features some issues that could be upsetting for some people. Infertility, miscarriage, the loss of children, that kind of stuff. I don't normally do trigger warnings all that often because it's a horror podcast. You know, it's 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 kind of in the name. And by now you'll notice that I rarely revel in the actual nastiness. But you may not necessarily come to this podcast expecting those emotional issues. And as I have friends who are going through their own fertility struggles, I, I know how upsetting it can be. So don't be afraid. This is a very fun chat but also a very frank chat, and that's just a mild warning. That said, on we go to the leafy suburbs of North London, where the houses are expensive, the gardens immaculate, but the interiors hide all kinds of dark secrets. Let's talk scared. Well, hello Tina, and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your woman to talk scared because I'm always scared about everything all the time. <laughs> well, I've, I've been looking forward to this episode a lot ever since I read um, the, the little bio on your dust jacket on the book, which, as I think I said on Twitter, contains more story than, than a lot of novels. Ah. So, yeah, yeah, you're my second British guest in a fortnight, actually, which may be a record run because normally it's Americans. So for the benefit of my overseas listeners... I'm going to ask you where you're speaking to us from and try and make it sound exotic. 
Well, it's North London, but I'm very common. Uh, so if my <laughs> accent puts people off, um, like Neil, I'm a bit, you know, sort of Northern. Well, actually, I'm from a place in the Midlands, which is, well, it used to be a coal town because it's called Coalville. And now it doesn't have any pits left. It's been devastated. Um, and now I live in nice North London. So it's it's weird for me. I've never really felt since I left home that I'm at home anywhere. Uh, but I'm at home in my brain, if you know what I mean. So I spend endless hours with fictional people in front of my computer. So it doesn't really matter where you live anymore, does it? And thanks to podcasts and social media, I feel closer to people the other side of the world than I do, say, my next door neighbor who, who I hardly saw for two years because I had to shield during lockdown because uh, I've got really bad asthma brought on by the fact that I'm scared all of the time of everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, it's not necessarily exotic, but it's also where my books set. So, you know, they say, write what you know. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if I could ever write historical fiction because I can't make up stuff that I've not lived through, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, we'll talk about living through things. We'll, we'll get to that. And we'll also get to the kind of juxtaposition between sort of industrial northern towns and leafy north London suburbs, because that, that class yeah. divide is a bit of a big thing in the book we're here to discuss. Yes, <laughs> that book being Call Me Mummy and the way that Neil says class I know he's on my side. How, <laughs> Very much. How you say class or bath? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I used to date a girl who was from Bath and said Bath and it was never going to work. Um, yeah, traitor. Yeah, for class traitor. I, uh, well, basically, I think this book, this episode has the risk of turning into a kind of hour-long rant about the media and bigotry and the deep-seated working-class chip on my shoulder. Um, but, yeah, we'll get to that. The, the book in question, Call Me Mummy. So I read it this week, and by God, marketing categories be damned, it's a horror novel. I know it's it's a thriller and all that. Anyone who doesn't think this is a horror novel has got too narrow an idea of what that word means. I am so glad that you say that, because I'm sort of... I didn't realise I was a genre writer, Honestly, I you know, it's crime because it starts off with somebody stealing a child. That's mm. the first crime. But for me, any horror, it's much more emotional, psychological horror. There are moments in it where one of the characters sees horns on her child's head, but that's for hormonal postpartum psychosis reasons. To me, that's far more horrific. Uh, we've just seen Blood Red Sky on Netflix. Yeah. And the most moving scene in that, which is for me like a classic horror, it's vampires on a plane. There's no spoilers in that film. But the most horrific scene in that entire film was when the little lad can't be with his mother because she's a vampire and she's pushing him away because she can't trust herself with him. Um, and it's the most moving scene. And I sobbed my heart out at that. So I've got to have an emotional hook for horror to work for me. 
And yet I jump at everything, you know, even the classic horror, anything, you know, scary in the dark. I'm an eeker. You don't really want to watch a film with me. I eek, I jump, I, I terrify my husband because I, I really shout. But it's got to have the characterization that I care about that vampire. It can't just be a generic vampire. So for me, the dark psychological horror is is where I'm sort of living at the moment. Welcome to the inside of my psyche. <laughs> That's where I live. <laughs> well, if this book tends to go by, it has the potential to be quite a dark place. So give us an idea of what Call Me Mummy is about before we start. Well, I went and did an MA in novel writing. Um, and one of the tasks was go somewhere that, where you've never been. And I went to a shop called Mother Care. So it was a British shop that actually went under. So the very first scene in my book, I was furious at the actual place I set it in, a real shop. Uh, it went bust before the book came out. And I also like playing with really dark gallows humor. So the fact that a woman steals a child from mother care, I thought was funnier. <laughs> but I had a complete meltdown in mother care because for many years I tried to have my own child and didn't. So I went through all the hormone treatment, um, you know, all the invasive procedures. And at the end of it, nothing apart from four cats who don't care. If they could open the cans themselves, I'd never see them, quite frankly. As soon as they develop opposing thumbs, that's it. They're out of here. But it was, you know, right from a place that's sort of the most bruised place, really. So I have been in a shop where I saw a woman shouting at a little child. And I thought, you cow, I want that kid. You know, that kid would be better off with me. I've had that impulse to take a child I, I thought was being abused. But I've never done it. That's that's honestly I haven't. There's nobody <laughs> hidden, hidden about my flat. But what if? So it was based on going there, having that really awful experience of loss and grieving. And, and it's like, yeah. And the woman who lives in the nice North London suburb, who's very middle class and, you know, thinks she can give this child a better start in life. The woman she steals her from is a woman like myself, common, tattoos, uh, sweary, and she is branded very easily by the British media, scummy mummy. And so you've got that examination. You learn about those two women, the woman who steals a child. Now, anybody who does that has got to be a bit unhinged. So it was sort of easy uh, for me to sort of lean into the unhinged bit um, and then again, see where that took me. And then you have the other woman, the woman who loses a child. Would it be better to never have a kid or to have one and then lose them? So I grew up in the Midlands and the Madeleine McCann case really, you know, sort of got to me because they lived down the road. And it's like, how awful would that be to live for years and years, never knowing what happened to your baby? Mm. Uh, and I also thought, you know, because Madeleine McCann, nice middle-class parents, they were vilified by the press. What would have happened if they'd have not been in a nice taverna, but if they'd have been, you know, smoking, drinking on a bender, they would have been crucified by the press. And I'm a former journalist, so I can say that I know how headlines happen. 
You don't even have to make it up as the journalist. You can be interviewing somebody who brands somebody a scummy mummy, and that sticks. So I wanted, you know, I'm a sort of writer that I like the themes. I don't plot it out. I know the themes. I know what I want to write about. Sometimes it sort of surprises me. So in my novel, the character I identify with the most is Tonya, the little girl who's stolen. And she is so not the perfect daughter. And that very fractured relationship of the the mummy of the title who, who takes the child, the battle of wills that ensues. Because, you know, I was never the sort of daughter my own mother wanted. She is very much what I based the lead character on because it's a warped Catholicism my mum grew up with. So that's very dark for me, you know, when religion goes wrong. That's what happened to my mum. Well, you've thrown a lot at me there. So let me try and unpick that. What what you've got in this book is pretty much a two-hander, perhaps a three-hander, where you've got short, punchy chapters from the perspective of Kim, the so-called scummy mummy who's lost her child. There's, there's Tonya, the child in question, and there is Mummy, who is this middle-class woman who has stolen Tonya. That's the basic setup, yeah? And what clearly shines through is that you have a degree of empathy for all three people in that triangle. And I wondered, because of your own, as you've mentioned, your your own emotional experience of trying to have a child, going into it, did you go into the process of writing the book with the intention of giving mummy, the kidnapper, a sort of sympathetic portrayal? And did you still feel that way at the end of the novel? Yeah, I think the the decision I took was to chuck everything at it. You know, it's very raw because if you've wanted a child and you didn't get one, you know, it's there are days even now when it's like being punched in the gut for me. So I do this weird, I mother my keep fit classes. So my day job um, when I'm not writing is I teach keep fit. So I'm like the mother hen in a class situation I rescue cats, whether they want to be rescued or not. So, you know, that's my furry family. So, you know, I love animals. I love the connection with people. And most of my friends are much younger than me. My husband's much younger. So there's a way of mothering. And I just knew I was not going to do any holds barred. So the mummy character is based on that aspect to myself. And it's like a deep dive psychologically for me. And then almost write it without any editing as raw, where it's literally tear and snot stained on the page and then edit it. Almost all my editing is reining it back from something which is basically a howl, a howl of despair. So, yeah, I've got a lot of empathy for mummy. And what kept coming through was my own mother. We had a terrible relationship. God rest her soul. She's no longer with us. But um, she was abused by Welsh nuns, which is a lovely, you know, twist on the old theme. So she was left handed. Her hand was tied behind her back because that was a mark of the devil. She was beaten by the nuns. 
Um, and it really fucked her up. And so we we never had a normal mother-child relationship. So if you want gothic, she tried to stab me once. So she used to have these episodes which were terrifying. Um, the only way I can say it is I've been to enough Al-Anon meetings, you know, sort of in the past, of being with somebody who might flare up with alcohol. Um, she wasn't an alcoholic. She didn't do pills or anything, but she was working class, so she never got diagnosed. It was before Oprah Winfrey was on the telly. You know what I mean? If you were working class and you never did therapy, you wouldn't know that you'd got really dark issues. So yeah. I have a lot of empathy for where mummy goes to this place in her head, which is completely out there. And also what grief and giving birth does to the woman who's lost a child. It pushes people to the absolute edge. And I know what that feels like a little bit from being pumped full of artificial hormones, um, you know, and it failing time and time again. And there's me curled up on the bathroom floor bleeding. It All you want to do is weep. And so I think the way I deal with that in the writing is go all out. And the way I deal with that as a person to deal with it, it's like I write like a six foot goth. And I actually turn up and I'm like my little pony. You know, it's always like bright colors and making jokes. And the humor got me through writing it. It gets me through life, really. That's the thing that keeps me going. And I've worked in newsrooms when the most hideous stories are coming in. And the joke of a journalist will be much quicker than you could ever post because you would be stoned to death. It's something about saving yourself, gallows humour, uh, that in the darkest, darkest bits, and this is why I like any sort of horror to have moments of real black humour, you know, twisted humour, because mm. otherwise it's just like a, it's like a therapy session, isn't it? It's like bleak. You just need moments like a brightness and joy. I mean, even Silence of the Lambs, there were bits that, you know, one-liners like love the suit you know that make me laugh even now and that was you know one of the scariest movies I've seen well th that humor comes through but it weirdly comes through in exactly the same part of the novel that makes me hate the mummy character because like let me elaborate on this yeah I went into it understanding that I was supposed to try and have empathy for, for both of them Right. Yeah. Uh, because you start it and you you very cleverly set it up so that the reader assumes that that Kim, Tonya's mum, is a kind of scummy mummy. And then you realise that may not be the case. And I went into it thinking, OK, I'm going to try my hardest to empathise with both. And it was a toing and froing with the mummy character. Yeah. The kidnapper, where I was like, every time I thought she was beyond the pale, you'd give me some psychological insight into her past that made me realise why I had to have empathy for her. But then by the end, I thought she was just too monstrous. But yeah. now this may say a lot more about me, actually, than the character. But I realised that I don't necessarily hate mummy because she steals and mistreats a child, though that doesn't endear her to me. But yeah. it's actually <laughs> her snobbery that pushes her beyond the pale. Yes. 
And but but that's also where the humour comes in because you bring that part of her character out so well in these little comments she makes about food and furnishings and the child's behaviour. And at one point, the, the kids like being sick and and peeing on the floor, and and, and the mum's like, "Well, I'll never get that out, out of the carpet," you know. And it yeah, and it's the <laughs> it's the humour of it, kind of like the ridiculousness of it. But that's also why I hate her quite so much. By the end, that snobbery. Oh yeah, I mean you know the class thing about. Uh thinking you're better than other people because you've got a nice smeg fridge says a woman with a nice smeg fridge now I'm a two I'm a traitor to my class but it's like it's not about that is it it's about anybody can give a good home to a cat or a dog or a human being it doesn't have to be perfect and I think we're bombarded by beautiful images on Netflix um, you know, uh, that even people who do the most basic jobs live in nice apartments and it takes me out the story. Mm. And I think now we live in this community sort of society, which is so consumer based. Um, and I was brought up in a caravan, you know, my mum was from a traveling background, which is why she didn't really get to read or write properly. Cause when she was put in school, as I say, they were horrible to her, but th they just moved around a lot. It, not a gypsy community. There were what they called showmen. So my background's really weird. My dad's God rest his soul was a window cleaner. She was a traveler who became a cleaner. Uh, we cleaned floors. I didn't have pocket money. I was working from when I was 12. I mean, and when I say stuff like that, you feel like, yeah, we get up, we lick the road clean with us tongs. And, you know, it's that working class chip on my shoulder. But I never met many people from my background when I worked at the BBC, uh, when I worked in broadcasting. There weren't that many people who wanted to be a novelist coming from a caravan background. So when I saw my book in Tesco, which is out in paperback now, just now, to me, that was like winning the Booker Prize. And you can't really tell people if they don't get class. People are aware of class in Britain, much more so, I think, than in America. But it colours everything for me. Um, it colours everything as in you've got to earn a living, you've got to graft, as my dad said. So I've got a really good work ethic, but it doesn't translate sometimes. It's like people who write novels as a creative outlet. You've got to know that you can pay the bills before you've got a creative outlet. So I'm really old to start this. It took me until both my parents died, so it sort of gave me the freedom to think I can say anything I want without them both being mortified. You know, it's like you want people to read your books, but you don't want anybody who really knows you to read your books. And you don't want your mum and dad to be horrified by sex scenes, you know. So I came to this really, really old and I made that decision. I was going to chuck everything at it and no holds barred and answer any question and be as raw and as open as I could because it's like, you know, it's not a midlife crisis. It's like I'm 63. And, you know, I know to, how to use makeup and good lighting, but my body knows it's 63. So you've got to go for it. You've got to go for it. And I've got to go for it 100% really. Um, and the class thing, it's like the more I can champion working class writers like myself, the better. I think now, you know, with Bernadine Eberisto and uh, Dougie Stewart, writing stuff that's finally being seen by the, the great literati, brilliant. 
because a lot of the stuff I read growing up, it wasn't about people like me. It was lovely literature, but, you know, there wasn't enough. And there's still not enough, I think, just, you know, it was like Irving Welsh and Roddy Doyle and Barry Hines. They're the people, it's like, you see me. You're not just writing lovely ladies who go to lunch. And I've got nothing against lovely ladies who go to lunch, but I usually work through my lunch break because I'm working class. It tells you what you have to do in the title. You have to work. Well, it, it's a weird thing. in Brit I was going to ask you whether you think it's a, a particular British trait that we we reject people who are snobs or we, we seem to have a particular hate in Britain for this strand of middle class social climber, as I always call them, the Volvo crowd. Apologies for any Volvo drivers. Um, but it, come, it shines through in this book, in all the characterization. It, it brings back a quote that I once heard a comedian say who was talking about the difference between America and Britain. And he says, he said, in America, racism is a way of hating people who look different to you. In Britain, class is a way of hating people who look the same as you. Oh, that's a good one. That's a zinger. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good quote, right? Yeah. It's a really good quote. I think it really shines through in this because normally in Britain, we would always say that we hate snobbery and these social climbers and blah, 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 because, because we naturally root for the underdog. But actually, your book shines a light on that lie because Kim, who loses her child, is in every conceivable way an underdog. She's been abused, you know, and then she is abused in the wake of this tragedy. And it's all because she doesn't meet our expectations of what a good mother is. Absolutely. So let's talk a little about that side of the story. I'll ask you a broad question because I didn't, I didn't want to streamline it too much. But what are you trying to get at in the characterization of Kim, both your characterization of her and the way she's characterized by other people in the novel? I think it's because you can't win as a woman, as a mother, as lots of people because you have labels attached to you. So if I was an American, I'd be trailer trash. Um, and that could be perhaps more celebrated in America if you, you know, with trailer trash made good. In, you internalize that though. So it didn't really matter where Kim came from because she judges herself more harshly than any label the media puts on her. Um, you know, I'm not slagging off the press because I was the press, but it's really easy to do sound bites and make it look like you're failing. And women's magazines that I worked for, you're either too fat, too thin. You're either a stay-at-home mum and that comes coloured with a judgment because you've not got a job. Or you're a working mother and that comes coloured with a judgment because you're not spending enough time at home with the kids. And then you could be a, is it called a helicopter mum or something? You know, you're pushing your kid too much or you're ignoring them too much. And I just sort of think we're all human. So Kim's not a bad person. She's just human doing the best she can in the circumstances. I think mummy, as you said, perhaps goes beyond the pale. But again, monsters aren't born, in my humble opinion. I think monsters are created. Mm -hmm. Because how many serial killers do me and you know? Very few, even in our industry. There are very few people who don't have 
something that you can at least understand a bit of why they do that. People who snap, and it's a road rage incident, people who snap and it's a murder-suicide or the pressures of the world, even before the pandemic, are so much that all of us have got these huge cracks running through our psyches. And I think that's more understandable, really. Um, the class thing, I think it does obsess me. Um, the, the second book, I'm in the middle of doing a, a proof edit. And that, again, is a class battle. But I don't set out. It was not in my brain at all that this was going to be quite so much about class. It just evolved. So I'm, I'm not one of these people who plot, um, you know, I lean into it. I've got a general idea of what I want. But the media are obsessed with it, but they're only obsessed with it because of the comments, because of the reactions. If all of us stopped worrying about, you know, the size of people's bums, we wouldn't have a million diet features. We wouldn't have people having photos of, oh, my God, look, that celebrity's got cellulite. So, I mean, there must be an audience for it. And I think it's just self-loathing. It's reflected by the media. And of course, it whips it up and social media as well can whip that up. But it's something about trying to just be okay with how we are, flaws and all. And that's a lifelong thing. I think it's a, a quest. I won't use the word journey because I think people should be stoned in the street for using the word journey unless they're on a train. But that's just me. I did an interview last night with uh, an author called Lee Mandelo and I used the word journey and immediately apologised for it. It's awful. You do, don't you? I know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm obsessed with that. It's like you're not on a journey. Perhaps we all are. It's interesting you say that you're obsessed by class in fiction, though, because I'm obsessed by class. I continually rant about it. And, and I, I do say that realising that I'm a man who quit my job to try and write a novel and set up a podcast. You know what I mean? So I'm hardly down the pit. Exactly. You know, yes. you're you're a successful novelist. You've had a career in broadcasting. I wonder if we are deep down obsessed by this this class system because we feel we're not necessarily doing our part. You know, I wonder if we feel that like we are deep down traitors to our own ideals. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, my husband joined a union last week after I nagged him for twenty one years. Um, you know, and I used to be uh, in Britain, the NUJ has something called Mother of the Chapel. That's how old it is. So, you know, I used to be very active, but I'm no longer doing that because I'm no longer in that industry. Mm. Yeah, I, do, I think that's true. But it's also, I don't think people born in a different class and having an education system that makes you feel confident would second guess themselves or judge themselves in the same way. Seriously, I don't think the p politicians at the moment have a moment's shame. And they've all got blood on the hands at the moment. I've been ranting today about, you know, in our country, you don't have to wear a mask now, mm -hmm. you know, and the vaccine passports aren't coming in. And it's like I look people in the eyes at work and say, you know, you could kill me yeah. by doing this because, I, you know, I'll probably get a third jab. I'm like a mm. colander. I had my flu jab yesterday as well. But, you know, it's just like um, I've got a friend who whose son lives in Japan and they, they wear masks as a matter of kindness and politeness for the people who are vulnerable. And, and our society seems to be led by people who just don't care, just well, don't care. 
Kindness is an interesting word because I feel like that's it sounds like a, this sounds like a cheap segue, like I'm trying to force my way back to your book. I'm not. This is genuine. Kindness to me is at the heart of this book, or perhaps a lack of kindness. Yeah. Um, because the the world you show in this story. How do I put this? So it's a book which is all about empathy and it demands empathy of the reader for everyone involved in the story. But it also seems to be a book about the abject lack of empathy in the world. You know, you, you have these brilliant facsimiles of social media posts and excerpts from magazines and, and a great scene when Kim gives an interview and she's basically she's baited to, to live up to this this negative stereotype. And and at every juncture, it's just the the blackest satire about how our our society isn't kind anymore. It's it's just a trap that seems built to to get people. Yeah, I I think it's a lot easier in some ways, particularly in social media. There's no comeback, is there? Um, and I I drive a pink car with eyelashes to stop my own ra- road rage because um, so if you see a pink car with eyelashes that is indeed mine um, because I rage 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 against the machine and I rage in my book so it is a bit ranty at points because I'm inhabiting the, the trolls I they've not come for me particularly at the moment for this book they came to me when I was on. Celebrity Fit Club the week after my mother died um, and making fun of me uh, crying and I was accused of, um, you know, fake, being fake and being all jazz hands. And I can remember thinking, but my mum's just died and I had a really difficult relationship with her, so of course I'm going to be flaky. So they have come for me and I know what that feels like. And it just feels like if you could frame it that... You're, you're allowing them to sort of let off steam so they don't go round and shove a cat in a bin or, you know, they don't go round and smash somebody's window in or slap their own kids. Perhaps it's a pressure cooker thing for them. But most of the time, I just want to punch them. Uh, so it's a way of dealing with my own frustrations, really. Um, I don't think I'm a violent person now because I no longer drink or do drugs because when I drank, I was not a nice person. And I know that rage is in me. And that to me is terrifying to know you've got that capability. Uh, there's, you know, a scene in, in the book I'm just writing where somebody goes and kicks a car. And I've done that. I've kicked a car so hard I've tented it. Uh, because of what they've done to me. So, you know, that's not something to brag about, is it? And uh, and the older I get, I thought I'd calm down. I thought, I think I am by instinct a kind person, but I do think the pressure cooker of life can put anybody under with circumstances. It can all build up so people break and lash out. And then they might regret that for the whole life. But it's those breaking points, those real dark bits. I think I've got to have some empathy for that. It's not like I'm dreaming it, but my dreams are really bleak. And, and since the pandemic, you know, I've woke up in the middle of the night terrified most nights. The first night I slept all the way through was after I had my first vaccine. It was that bad. So, yeah, you're just sort of exploring all the 
all the Maya getting right down in there in the darkest, deepest chasm of your psyche. It's really good fun. <laughs> Coming back to Kim, because Mummy is kind of the she's the the, the exotic character, isn't she? she? She's the one who we could talk about her makeup and you know, but she's the character is all singing, all dancing. You know, the one that on paper looks like the, the most interesting character. But I really enjoyed the char- characterization of Kim because I like the way you just constantly subverted our expectations of her because. As I say, in that first chapter when she's screaming at Tonya and then she turns her back and Tonya is taken and, and you you know, you know find out she's had a, a drink and drugs past, you, you, know, you, you have this impression of her as the tabloid fodder that, that she is treated as. But then you, you reveal things like the fact that she reads and she's good at English. And it's, it's funny how often that um, is a sign of a character having substance. And she's actually very caring and she's best friends with a Muslim woman. Um, and all these things that really subvert our expectations of, quote, that kind of person. And I did wonder, were you kind of challenging readers to confront their own assumptions about women like Kim? I, I know what you're saying and probably a little bit, but I, uh, the character lives on an estate, which again, the estate got a bad reputation. And I worked there teaching Zumba. I taught Zumba at the local mosque and the ladies from the mosque would come to my Zumba class at this council estate. Mm-hmm. So even the estate and that mosque got terrible press. And then you know the individuals. I think when you know an individual, it's different. You can't stereotype an individual because mm-hmm. we've all had different experiences. So I've sat in those flats on that estate and I've walked down the, where, the, where the book's set and the ladies in robes who I've taught, I didn't know which one was which because you can't see anything apart from their eyes and the doors say hello. Uh, so that was something I'd had direct experience of. And I, and I suppose that sort of evolved for me that I, I, my background, as I say, was sort of vaguely Catholic until I worked at the mosque. I didn't really know very many Muslim people. And so knowing those women individually, that's where the character of Aisha comes. She's just like the mate. Mm-hmm. And she is just a mate, even though I think she's one of the more solid people in the book. I love Steve. Steve's based on my husband, Jeff, who's a gamer, you know, and he's one of those solid blokes who doesn't say very much, really. But again, he's like one of the rocks in that book. Um, So yeah, it wasn't like, it's not as calculating as thinking, oh, I want to change people's opinions. But if it can, hallelujah, really, because it like it means something to me. It means something to just look with different eyes on people you might walk by in the road. I mean, for me, Kenny, who's a character who comes right at the end, so I won't say too much about how he comes in, who's just a homeless man. And, you know, I know him. I know that character. It's not I know that person called Kenny, but I know is an amalgamation of a couple of people I walk by at Finsbury Park. So it's like seeing with different eyes, I suppose. But when I say that, I feel too grand and I feel like I'm blushing. And it's like, make of it what, you know what I mean? Make of it what you will. It's here's my, here's it, here it is. But the reader brings their own thing to it, well, don't let, let me Let me say the grand things then, right? So you don't have to, because <sighs> I, I stand by this. Because before you said 
that, you know, the book might seem a bit ranty. And then you just said, like, it might seem calculating and stuff. And actually, it's quite the opposite. So what I loved, I will say, about this book is how subtly you reveal both Kim and Mummy through illusion rather than overt statement. Very little in this book is overt or ranty or or calculated. It feels incredibly naturalistic that you piece together who these women are and their what I would probably call psychological logic, you know, why they work the way they do. As a reader, you piece it together without ever being told. For example, an example, mummy has an eating disorder that you can trace it back through her relationship with her father and more specifically her sister's relationship with their father. And then it gets passed on to Tonya in a certain way. And it's it makes complete sense, but you never ever say, this is why she is the way she is. And it's it's more chilling because it's not laid bare. But for, for want of a better phrase question, how did you do that? How did you get all those incidental details that make up these women without sitting down and going, okay, this is who they are. This is how they are. I wish I could tell you as in, you know, I know people who do spreadsheets and think I want to reveal this then, but I'm sort of more like I feel how it's going to go. I honestly didn't know when it set off that that's how it was going to be. So it it, it sort of reveals itself in the process. Mm. I do know about eating disorders because I'm a keep fit instructor and girls come and tell me stuff. Um, uh, my mum had a bit of a disordered eating thing as well with, as everything else. So it's like direct experience. You know if people have had really tragic backgrounds like I think my mum that sounds a big word but she did have an awful background in some ways um that's it wounded her and it you know it gets passed on then she wounded me so it's like years of counseling of trying to get yourself put back together again so I think it's leaning into the stuff where I've probably not wanted to explore before Luckily, many horrible things have happened to me and I've got enough material for many more books. <laughs> but it's just, you know, the, the starting point was just what would, what would it take for somebody to indulge that feeling of wanting to take a child? It would have to be something where somebody was very flawed because the bit that saves me is the humanity of you wouldn't do it to another woman. So for somebody to steal a child, they must be really broken, you know, broken beyond my most broken times. So I think that eating disorder is just like one of the many ways she is broken. Her obsession with, you know, cleanliness and a perfect picture, perfect daughter um, so the mother-daughter relationship thing, you know, fascinates me, particularly the broken ones, uh, the flawed ones, and the psychology of it. Like, you know, I always thought a thriller was something like James Bond. You know, you had to have espionage and flash cars. And what interests me is like, um, now I know it's called psychological thrillers, domestic noir, all the labels. Again, I didn't know my book was, I just wrote a book. But also, I do agree with you, it's psychological horror 
that's where I'm I'm at. I mean, we, we uh, the last house on Needless Street, which was one of my favourite reads um, of this year. It's like that ticked all the boxes for me because it's psychological. You can say very little about it because of the spoilers, but it's got heart. It's got real heart. For me, Shuggy Bane is a crime novel because what Thatcher did to pit towns like Colville, like my town, and to Shuggies is a crime. So, you know, it's like you can you can make anything have any label. It's just where it sits on the bookshelves, isn't it? What table it's at. Apparently mine's mine's a crime novel. But I've got pink, I've got pink on the cover. So that's not very crime. But I didn't know, you know, I don't know enough about the publishing world of like why mine's categorized as that rather than something else. I, I find it the most redundant line of inquiry as well about stuff like that. I just don't think it's I just don't think it's interesting. I think the book your book is interesting. Like what what shelf it's put on, I couldn't be yeah. less interested. All I hope is that by doing this show. And by speaks to people like you who are, I mean, the phrase that gets used a lot on horror Twitter is horror adjacent. Oh, you see, I've never heard of that. And my, my hope is there's a few people who may not have found your book because they can find themselves to the horror section may find it. You know, that's the only thing I care about. But you mentioned psychological horror and that that's what it is, because much like Needless Street, in a way, there are, there are lots of points of connection between them. And we had Kat on the show to talk about yeah. Needless Street. and. In both of those novels, what I actually admire is that despite being thrillers and despite having a front cover which looks like a very thrillery front cover, there's weirdly very little what you would call plot in, in either story. And that, that isn't a criticism, you know what I mean? What there is is a situation and then all of the action takes place, particularly in your novel, the the journey, he says, with inverted commas, takes place going into the minds of the people involved. Yeah. That's where, you know, if there is a linear trajectory in your story, it's it's back further and further into mummy's life. What's happening in the here and now is just kind of a stage for that exploration. So it's yeah. not really a plot-driven novel, is it? It's a character and a psychology novel. I mean, that's the next perfect nail on the head I'd have said yeah absolutely and that's sort of what I'd want to do I I sort of feel guilty people thinking it's a a a traditional crime novel because for me traditional crime like Jack Reacher is like getting on a horse and the horse is galloping to the end of the plot and it's all this happens then that happens and there's the twist and and they I admire but I don't know if I've got that in me to do you know, it's all the deep dive stuff and it's all characterization. I was a soap critic for many years on breakfast television in Britain. So I've watched a lot of soaps and you can do anything with a character you don't care about. You could blow them up. In Brookside, they had a, you know, a siege. They've had pandemics when Brookside was on the telly. Coronation Street, you know, we're, we're meant to believe Ken Barlow's had more women than hot pots. But if you believe and like the character, if you've got an empathy with the character, then you're interested in even the little scenes. You're interested in the funny scenes in EastEnders or Emmerdale or Coronation Street. So I've got an absolute passion for characters. You know, even Dickens, I mean, I did literature at university and Dickens, you know, some of those characters make me laugh even now. 
because yeah. they're some of them are caricatures, yeah, but some of them there's like little lines and that, and you just think, and and that started off as a soap, didn't it? When he was mm. writing for the newspapers, it was a serial continuing drama. For me, the funniest sentence ever written was in Nicholas Nickleby when um, Mulberry Squeers, the teacher, the hideous teacher. There's one bit where he um, it really makes you laugh. He it says something like Mulberry Squeers turned round and demanded of a boy what he was doing. And when the boy replied, nothing, sir, he struck him and said, don't do it again. And it's always yeah. like that. <laughs> but, but that's the, you know, I mean, that's an awful situation about, you know, a horror school where, yeah. where moments like that, I love those moments of humour and, you know, it's, it's, it has to be pitch perfect, doesn't it, to do that? Um, yeah. when, when you're growing up, I mean, I think, you know, my dad was a window cleaner, but also he was like a chatter. So as he was going around doing people's windows, he'd chat to them. And I think that was the warmth I got, you know, the Roddy Doyle warmth of characterization. That's what I'd want to emulate. I mean, he's not obviously a horror writer or anything, but I've always loved that people I can believe in, mm. um, you know, and Shuggy Bane, which is a complete sobathon. You know, there are moments in that that just make me laugh out loud because I know these women. I know those characters. I haven't um, read that yet. Oh, Jesus, you've got to. You've so got to. I, I You know, I, I, I don't want to oversell it, but it has won the Booker Prize. So you've got to do it. And it's in paperback now. I'm going to drag us back to the book for the last few questions. God bless you for doing that. Uh, but I, w- I will just say, about five minutes ago, it made me laugh because you made a big kind of statement about British soaps and Emmerdale and Brookside and Ken Barlow and all of these people and about 75% of my audience oh, they is, won't based know. In, is based in the US. And I'm just loving the fact that right now there is somebody sat in Boise, Idaho who has got absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Okay, so I have interviewed the cast of Sunset um, Beach and uh, The Young and the Restless. Uh, so it's con- those continuing dramas. They tend to be more daytime in in america but yeah those continuing drama with a larger than life characters really although they think a lot of the british soaps were documentaries because nobody would have looked as rough as, as pauline fowler even when they're having <laughs> seriously even when they're having you know brain transplants and evil twins they've still got full makeup on in the american soaps apparently so there you go <laughs> anyway, right your book Christ, let, let me let me try and make people read your book. <laughs> anyway, um, right, a few questions. So we, we, we talked, I don't know, 35 minutes ago, I don't know, something, about um, the, the, the things that had happened, the dark things that have happened in, in lives that lead people down the r- roads they go down. And you were saying the only thing that stops you, you know, from doing certain things is your humanity, that, you know, you know you've got control of these things. And both Kim and Mummy have had horrendous lives and they're both massively marred by drug abuse both both sides um they've both been abused sexually abused in their childhoods and the only difference really is that their specific behaviors as a consequence or more specifically the people's reactions to their behaviors are shaded once again through the issue of class so for example Kim's past drug use is vilified, 
whereas mummy's sherry dependency seems far more benign, even though it's not. Because it's not accidental that you create this tightening narrative parallel where more and more and more as it goes along, their experiences are the same. same. Their day-to-day experiences are the same, but just filtered through slightly different lenses. What's going on there? What was the idea behind that? Because I think it's um, it's me, it's my experiences in the past. It could have gone either way, and I'm sort of somewhere in between. Uh, so a lot of those things I've lived through, and I've always wondered, why am I not on the street shooting up heroin? Um, I could have been, easily. Um, and why have, have I gone down this route? So again, it's a bit of an exploration I mean, years of therapy and years of like Al-Anon and all of that sort of stuff have saved me. And and that is hallelujah. I mean, it really has, because there is a bit of self-loathing and self-flagellation that we all do, no matter what our backgrounds. I know people who've had lovely backgrounds who still put themselves through it. You know, people whose, you know, big hurt in the past was, say, a divorce, But it's how you internalize it. And I think that's very dangerous that if you start to hate yourself, it's a downward spiral. Um, So for me, writing is trying to get the spiral the other way. So both Kim and Mummy are the two facets of, of my experience with abuse, sexual abuse. You know, I tick all the boxes and I can say it like that in a light way because this isn't a therapy session. But I write from the heart. I write from the wounds. I write from somebody who has wailed on the floor because I haven't had my own baby. Um, and that's all I can do. I, I can't really make up something that I've got no identification with. I couldn't write a James Bond because, you know, they're brilliant, but I've got, I'm, you know, no experience of being a spy. I've got no experience of some of those clever crime novels, which are whodunits, because I sometimes sit there and I think, I don't know. You know, I I, I really had to struggle watching Sherlock. Um, No shit. And, you know, it's that sort of thing where you're focusing on the different types of crime, like cosy crime. I'm not a cosy person. I'm an all out there person. I overshare at every opportunity. The very first conversation I had with my editor at Viper Books, I was telling her about the state of my fallopians. It's like I don't want to have a filter. And I sort of think rather than feel mortified and ashamed about that, which my growing up in this sort of rather rather warped Catholic thing, you, you can't win as a woman. I mean, we're looking at what's happening abroad and Texas is bloody Gilead now from The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, it's like we're turning, aren't we, into the worst nightmares. So I just think in a really tiny way, if I'm writing from the heart and putting it all out there, that's something. And yeah, it's it's just different lenses, as you say, and how people look at it. And it's like, you know... It's just me. It's just me writing my heart out. A minute ago, you said, I've forgotten what you said exactly now, but you said something about like you can't win as a woman. And and that brings yeah. to one of my, one, one of the few questions that I've written down to ask. It's a Ooh. bit of a convoluted question. Um, so let's take this slowly because I've written about a paragraph here. Um, right. So very early on in the book, 
when Mummy steals Tonya. It's like page 10 or something. So she's basically dashing away with her. She's trying to get out of the shop and get her in on the bus. And she's trying to work out in the panic how to get her home. And so it's quite a fraught sort of chapter. Um, and she uses this phrase that kind of leapt off the page at me. Because she's talking about how everyone in the city is primed for a madman's attack, whether it's terrorism yeah. or whatever. And she has this quote and she says, few fear the mad woman. And I was like, oh, that is a that is a fantastic sentence. I bloody love the fact that you, you picked up on that. I bloody love that. Uh, because, yeah, it's true, though, isn't it? And sometimes the big terrorism which is out there, is happening in people's houses. Well, right. Well, let me ask you this. So what it made me think was, it's sort of, sort of three-part question. So I was like three things off the back of that. So one, it's Mummy who says, few fear the mad woman. So at that point, does Mummy know that she is not well? <laughs> I don't think she really does at that point, but I think everybody does in the back of the minds. I've known when I've been on the brink, put it like that, even when you're not acknowledging right. it. So I think she has, I think anybody knows if you've stolen a child that you are not well. That's the fair point, yeah. But then as the novel goes on, it's this awful sense of like, what do they call it, dramatic irony, where we, we know that she has gone around the bend and she's increasingly thinks that she's rational in how she's dealing with this child. It's, it's, that's where it gets frightening, that she can't see her own monstrosity. Yes. Second, how does the fact that she is female change the typical abduction narrative? Was that one of the hooks for you, that this is a different way of taking this? Because yeah. all the way through the book, it's, it's an assumption that this child has been taken by a man for nefarious purposes. It's a, it's a wholly different story, isn't it? Because she's been taken by a woman. Yeah. And she has got a saviour complex, which is worrying in itself. Um, a lot of religions you can't win as a woman if you take it to the nth degree. So in Catholicism, I think she actually says, you know, because Hail Mary, you know, um, she is told to go forth and breed and she can't. So she feels less of a woman because of that. Like I felt, you know, I have failed. I have not been a mother. But you also can do this thing that you're saving that child. And I think the blinkers are on. She's sort of almost doing the equivalent of la, 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 not listening to the awareness that she is deeply disturbed because she is frenetically saying, I'm going to save this child. So that is very worrying, as worrying as a man stealing a child, I think, in a different way. Yeah, yes. And it kind of leads on to my third question about that quote, because it's such a telling quote. As readers of, you know, horror, horror-adjacent, whatever, frightening stories, do you think we react differently to female villainy? I absolutely do. And I fought for the language in the book because I said, well, Irving Welsh can F and blind, you know, in every other sentence. Is it because I'm a female writer that you're telling me to rein in the language? Because that's the language in my brain. It's how I was worked up. But it's true that there's things that I did want to rein in. So you have got more empathy, for instance, for, for Kim, every other word, 
in my mind, is a swear word. But you don't want to cut a reader off from empathizing with her. If she'd been a chain smoker when pregnant, that would have made the switch go. So yes, there's more, If it, the villainy, you judge a woman in a different way. Obviously, you can't judge a chain smoking pregnant man, because at the moment, we're not quite there yet. But we're judged differently for things we do. A swearing woman, a tattooed swearing woman who smokes is judged differently to a tattooed smoking swearing man. Uh, a sexually promiscuous woman is still judged differently to a sexually promiscuous man. And I can only write from my viewpoint. Um, I do think I can head hop into a male perspective to a certain degree. But this novel, particularly, Steve's almost like the, the father who loses the child. He, he's a strong, silent, or perhaps not so strong, but he's a silent type who his drug of choice is gaming. And that's what my husband does. You know, he'd be happy mm. to tell you about his gaming. And he tries to numb the pain by literally sitting in front of his games for hours on end. Um, in the next novel, it's much more equal between the male and female perspectives. So I hope I've done the male perspective a bit more justice. That's interesting, though, about the language, about the use of, of bad language. I hate when people, another pet hate, just like the word journey. I hate when people use the word foul language, that phrase. It's my language, yeah. War, warning of foul language. I'm like, how you, you don't get to make the call, you know what I mean, on what is foul. It's like, it's ah, God, I am getting a chip on my shoulder. But it's, tr it's true. It's how I grew up. The, the, this book is is full, absolutely full, more than pretty much any book I've read recently of profanity. And you say you had to fight for it. And I wonder, I, I wanted to ask about that because it is so striking how, how much cursing there is in the book. And I know that other authors I've spoken to have said they've had to fight for every fuck. Yeah. You know what I mean, they've had to wrestle for, oh, we, no, you, you can have seven fucks, but not nine because stuff like that. And did you get pushback on that in this book? Yeah. And I get what they were saying, that you switch off from it. So I wanted the ones I used to be emphatic and mm -hmm. to stand out. My dad's language was every other word was fuck, literally. Um, it was just punctuation. It was like breathing. Now I've done a lot of, a lot of broadcasting. So I can, I think, I, you, you know, I've never sworn live on air if it's not that sort of show. I can edit it, but there's always a bit of my brain editing as I'm, as, as I'm talking. Mm. And I wanted to make the character realistic, if you've been brought up like that, I want some of it in because other people like us will understand that. You know, if you've watched the soaps, whichever soaps you've watched, or Shameless, and I know they did Shameless in America as well, a lot of the language is sanitized. Uh, whereas real people anywhere on the streets of New York, on the streets of London, you will hear that punctuation swearing and I think when it's written down it is slightly different so I don't feel I've given in because there's still been an immense lot of slagging off for the amount of bad language that's in there I don't think it's gratuitous at all absolutely not but it's to try and make it real how I think and feel 
So, you know, I still fight for it. The second one, you know, I was the same in the middle of editing that, and it's the same thing, you know, to make that character not completely dislikable, you've got to rein it in a bit. Um, we'll see. You know, if you win the booker, then you get to swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other, the, the, to, to finish up, the, the last thing as well, is that, and again, again, it's about authenticity of voice, because as you say, like everyone I know speaks like the characters in this, in this book, you know, that's, that's how people converse yeah. in everyday life. And the, the, but also a lot of these characters, um, particularly Kim and Steve use very un PC terms when discussing things like race or, or sex or disability, you know, uh, Aisha, Kim's friend, her son, has got some unspecified disability. And it doesn't ever come across as bigotry. It just comes up as a kind of hyper-realistic depiction of how these characters would speak, a kind of uninformed, I suppose, without sending a bit snobby myself, the kind of uninformed language of how they would talk about these issues, but very well-intentioned. But they love, they love... Yeah, oh. exactly. They love these people. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's not mean-spirited no. or bigoted. It's just a different kind of verbiage and it's but realistic I'm... they're they're the words that have been used for real people who i know for real disabled people it's not uh, it's really dangerous i think that self-editing before it's even out there right exactly that because i wanted to ask um we all know how willfully obtuse some people can be about these issues, you know what I mean? Like they, do you know what I mean? It's like people can get on their eye horse about this kind of thing, and I think ridiculously, you need you, people should have a critical idea of why you're using this language. Um, it's for a purpose. But were you ever worried about getting any pushback up that people may confuse, you know, your character's language for yours? I worry about everything all the bloody time, but I just know it's from a place of love. And as you mm -hmm. say, the authentic voice, nothing in there is like invented to shock. And in a way, again, it's like they love Aisha. They love Aisha's son. And it's it's almost like an aside. It's not the mm. main issue. The, the main issue is the relationships, the characters. And I do think we're getting to a, a point of view that you can only write a certain way and that, I, I think, is really sad. I really think if you can't be honest with the best intentions, we're all going to have the same sort of books. And my, my mm. books aren't those sort of books. I, I find it a lot more horrific to see casual cruelty than uh, a term used sort of, as you say, uninformed. But but with the best intentions. Yeah, and that, I totally agree with you. Th you know, that class of people who say it in a loving way, they're going to be left behind. It's like you're never going to have that little viewpoint into those real people because everything's mm -hmm. going to be sanitized and it's like nobody's going to recognize themselves because it's yeah. all a sort of airbrushed, version and that to me is as dangerous as you know the ladies with their tops off airbrushing themselves on instagram and only fans it's like we don't look like that you know filters literally are filtering everything now aren't they yeah and and what's really kind of makes the point of the book in a way is that 
you know, Kim or Steve use these terms that 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 may be declared unacceptable yeah. in certain discourse, but they are, as you said, directed at people they love, yeah. genuinely love and care about. And when you compare that kind of, I don't know, grandiose on PCness, when you compare it to Mummy and these little snippy understated comments on race and sex. Her views are far more toxic because yes. they're, they're born from bitterness. Yes, you know? yes, um, yes. And then we come back in full circle because, of course, I know what I'm doing now and I can tie these things up in a neat bow. We come back again to this particular loathing of the British middle class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think, you know, that the, you know, it's like, what is Call Me Mummy about? It's about somebody who steals a child. What's it really about? It's about class warfare and yeah. you know misogyny and a lot of other stuff as well but I'm I'm really thrilled that you get it and you know what I mean it's not just somebody liking a book it's like really getting it it's like yes there's my heart on the plate <laughs> and the people who read it like that and really get it it's like oh my god that's brilliant you know thank god you know going through all of that it's it's the best feeling in the world well, here you go. Here's your chance to do a bit for somebody else. Okay. I always ask my guests to recommend a book um, that they would like my listeners to read and tell us why. Dead Easy, Shuggy Bane. Uh, it's won the prizes. Um, it's it's about a working class lad whose mum is an alcoholic. It's set in a pit town not too long ago in Britain. And it's a slice of his heart. Douglas Stewart, the writer. Um, dear God, it just feels like as powerful to me as when I first read Kez. And after years of reading the books that they gave us at school, it's like, here's somebody like me. So mm-hmm. it's got the blackest humour um, it's what I call an ear wetter where you lie in bed and you're crying so much the tears go down and they literally are filling your ears. And it's got hope. It's got these little glimmers of hope and it's the, I get emotional just even thinking about it. It's the realest book I have read for ages. And of course, because it's a pit town and also it's growing up slightly different. Um, you know, I grew up in a caravan, so I was the dirty jippo at school. Um, he grew up gay, so he got that. It's for anybody who's felt a little bit of an outsider. It is beautiful, and it's a hard read in some ways, but it's worth it. Okay, well, that is quite the recommendation. Shuggy Bane, I have heard of it, obviously. Need to find the time to read it. I've got a holiday soon, soon as I can read something that's not horror for a change, so I might take it with me. My last question, and you've already mentioned several times that you're scared of everything, <laughs> but I always ask people this. What truly scares you? The dark. As a child, I wouldn't go to sleep in the dark. I had to have my curtains open, and I used to have a street light who I talked to. I was terrified of the dark, and the worst nightmare I've ever had, which is a repeating nightmare, is this something darker in the dark. And it's not, I don't know, I still, after years of therapy, still don't know what it is, but it's a darker form that's coming towards me. And this was like when we first moved into a house, so I was still quite small. And the, the, the feeling is me as a little kid with this little wicker chair that I used to sit on, trying to fend off this dark, 
blob, which was just darker than the darkness. And it still um, makes the hairs stand up and I feel quite queasy about it. So it's like anything in the dark at three in the morning is terrifying because it's yourself. It's the inside of your head. It's, you know, your room 101, you know, the scariest things. And that dark can be anything if it's rats for you, or if it's agoraphobia for you, whatever it is at three in the morning in the dark, that's the worst, the worst. Wow. Do you have like uh, night terrors and sleep paralysis yeah. or any of that stuff? Yeah. I thought I was yeah, done with them post-menopause, but no, I wake up and have to get my nighty off because it's like full body sweat and then put a clean nighty on and that. It's real night terrors and, and nightmares where I feel like if I'm being stabbed in the dream, I feel it. So it's a real a horrible thing like not always and thank god not all the time but you know you're actually feeling you know that the nazi is stabbing you with a bayonet and it might just be a cramp or something and i'm fighting my way to the surface i'm a deeply disturbed woman (laughs) (laughs) well what a marvelous way to finish an interview (laughs) all i can say like my, my listeners know by now i always say this I like all the all the books I read and talk about, but I always think they can pick the ones. They can discern the ones that I genuinely love. Um, and I will say that I I adored Call Me Mummy. I think it's one of the most most surprising books I've read. I think it's uh, it's an absolute eye opener, and I, I recommend people read it. So yeah, thank you for writing it. Thank you for giving me a twenty four hours of of almost constant reading and uh yeah tina baker thank you for talking scared god that was so lovely thank you so much thank you it's just like oh god you know it's like i thought i'd like you anyway because i've been stalking you obviously but that's it's it's my dog isn't it it's my dog it is basically (laughs) yeah I'm going to keep the afterwards short this week because we've already run pretty long. But what a conversation. Absolute cracker. It felt like sitting in the back of a pub after hours when someone has started suggesting we buy a round of shots and go on to a nightclub. (laughs) That said, the fact that I think Tina may be one of the best people alive in no way influences the fact that I think you should read her book. I, I was genuinely worried about featuring Call Me Mummy on this show because it's one of the titles that seemed the most tenuously linked to the horror side of things. How wrong I was. This book would never, ever be marketed as horror or anything other than a mainstream thriller, but there is such darkness within. Social, emotional, psychological and literal. If you liked Will Dean's The Last Thing to Burn or Cat Ward's Last House on Needless Street or those Stephen King 90s female-focused novels like Gerald's Game or Dolores Claiborne or even Misery, then you'll love this. It's got that same claustrophobic psychological acuity. As I said, the journey you go on is back into the roots and the underpinnings of these people. The plot in the here and now is just a framework, and and that in itself is a fascinating piece of craft. 
I won't go on because I've clearly already made it very clear why and, and how much I enjoyed Tina's novel. But yeah, consider this one fully recommended. It would make a perfect late year holiday read. I always like to kind of pick out a strand of things that I talked about in the interview. This time, ever since we spoke, I've been thinking about class and language in literature, and Tina's point about the lexicon of her characters being important and authentic. I think she's right. We live in this socially mediated world of acceptable and unacceptable speech. And I was wincing when I read some of her characters' comments, because I could imagine a certain kind of reader who would dismiss this book as discriminatory. And then I got annoyed at this reader, who is entirely theoretical and may not even exist, because, well, I often get annoyed at ridiculous things. I loved reading voices that sounded familiar to the voices I heard growing up, and I'm now in full agreement with Tina that working-class idiom and voice and attitude isn't anywhere near present enough in contemporary fiction, certainly not in dark fiction, where all too often they are represented as lesser or small-minded or brutal whilst our protagonist's biggest problem is that the half-a-million-pound house is haunted. <laughs> Obviously, I'm overgeneralizing, but there is a core of truth to Tina's approach, and I'd be very keen to see more of it in horror. Read the book, you'll see what I mean. She wields her character's problematic language with love and compassion. Right, I said I wouldn't go on, and I won't, the standard stuff applies. You could talk books with me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email direct at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, but it really is hard work. It's uh, Talking underscore Scared underscore Pod. Really don't get on with that platform. I do my bit. You get your three photos a week. Have a look. But yeah, Twitter's my my place of choice. More importantly, if you want extra bonus content, such as the upcoming three-part history of horror, or extra chat from Sarah Flannery Murphy, Zoya Stage, and Richard Chismar, which is dropping this week, then sign up to Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Once you do that, you can also join the Digital Book Club via the free Novelic app. Basically, it's just a whole lot more of me, and if you want that, then I'll give it to you. The latest addition to the Patreon crew is Luan. Hi, and a bloody big welcome. We've already messaged and chatted via Patreon, so you already know how grateful I am, but yeah, I'll say it loud and proud for everyone to hear. Thank you. But that's it this week. Gotta go. This episode is getting mega long, but thanks all for listening, for subscribing, for reviewing and for just being the best audience a podcaster could hope for. I'm back next week with Lee Mandelo talking fast cars, hot guys, scary ghosts and summer suns. But until then, man the barricades, fight the power and wash your mouth out with soap and water. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>